Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Peter Jordenfors about his book, The Geometry of Meaning. His book outlines and develops a novel approach to semantics, founded in the idea of conceptual spaces, and discusses how linguistic meanings can be rooted in these spaces. In this interview, we talk about the essence of the theory and the nature of conceptual spaces, and we discuss some of its potential implications, not only for linguistics, but also for cognitive science, developmental research, and even human-computer interaction. I'm delighted to welcome Peter Jordenfors to talk about his new book, The Geometry of Meaning, in which he proposes a theory of semantics rooted in conceptual spaces. Peter, you've published extensively on a huge range of topics, both within and beyond cognitive science. What draws you to the subject of this work? I have always had an interest in different ways of representing knowledge. Uh, I started with an interest in logic, and then I turned to different kinds of epistemology. I was a philosopher for many years before I became a cognitive scientist. And then I started to become interested in using geometry as a general method of modeling uh, meanings, uh, semantic representations in particular, but also in in terms of reasoning and and, uh, other things related to that. It's definitely my impression that the um, mathematical content of this proposal is quite fundamental to your account. Do you feel drawn to to an approach that has that kind of rigor about it? I mean, I have a background in mathematics, and I like putting some kind of formal rigor to my, my writings. I mean, it, the book is not very mathematical, but I presume that you're familiar with some basic concepts of geometry, like uh, a set being convex and, and, and things like that. I, I, it should be easy, accessible, even, even if you don't have a very deep background in um, uh, mathematics. But that's part of my program. I mean, to give it a rigor that, in principle, in the long run, could turn this kind of semantics into some kind of computational Im- implementation. I mean, it strikes me as interesting because a lot of uh, work in this area, or it's my impression that a lot of work in this area uses mathematical analogies or uses, um, if you like, a metaphorical appeal to, to language. But this is, this is going rather deeper than that, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I have this idea of, of using conceptual spaces. And the idea of a space I take rather literally, that this, uh, they are built up from different kinds of dimensions, and then I perform various kinds of mathematical operations on these spaces in order to represent various aspects of of, uh, meanings of of words in natural language. Generally, it seems that your approach or conception of semantics breaks from, if you like, the linguistic tradition in several particulars. Um, What would you consider to be the most fundamental way in which it's a departure from that line? I mean, I'm I'm not a linguist, Really, I mean, I have studied a bit of linguistics, but I'm, I think of myself as a semanticist. I mean, I'm interested in the semantics of language and the meaning of communication. And that is not only language, but also gestures and other forms of uh, communication. And I think there is some kind of uh, structure to how our, how our minds represent meanings. And that these structures that I want to um, represent by, by conceptual spaces. And that means that 
the language as such is not the, the, what comes first in my approach, but it's these uh, semantic structures. And then I want to show that these structures can be used to model uh, different aspects of, of semantics. In particular, in this book, I, I try to explain why we have uh, different word classes. I mean, in traditional linguistics, word classes are, are uh, described in terms of their syntactic uh, features. I try to give a description that is totally free of syntax and instead do it in terms of conceptual spaces. Um, it's interesting that you position the work in that way. I remember talking to a linguistic semanticist uh, and asking whether uh, she considered semantics to be, a, if you like, a proper part of linguistics or whether she would embrace a more broad definition that took a lot of it, if you like, outside the domain of, of what has been treated in, in linguistics uh, in, in recent years, um, you would, I think, embrace a, a fairly holistic conception of semantics, wouldn't you? Yes, I, I do. I mean, unlike the Chomskyan tradition where the main interest is in whether a sentence is grammatical or not. I start with communication as the basic uh, element. I mean, we, we communicate in different ways, with or without words, and then we conventionalize our communication. We develop words and phrases that have particular meanings, and, um, and then we, in order to be more precise, we add, add syntactic markers to be able to communicate with, with further precision. So I, I would view the uh, three parts of, of, of language in, in the opposite order to what is normal within the Chomskyan tradition. What are the implications for that, in, in your view? What are the, uh, if you like, misperceptions about the way in which semantics should be analysed that we might fall into uh, by going about it the, the linguistic way, the syntax first way? Well, to put it very tersely, Meaning comes before uh, syntax. Uh, so we have these meaning representations in our heads, even before we start communicating uh, about them. And I mean, as, as children, of course, there is an interplay between language and, and meanings, but we have uh, our perceptual systems, we have our memory systems, and we have, have our ways of thinking. And these systems, they put constraints on how meanings can be constructed. And um, then we add language as a way of expressing these meanings. Um, so, so for me, language is so, it's, a, it's a tool for, for communicating about the meanings we already have. So you feel that the traditional approach is in some sense too, too inward-looking, would you say, or is that too uh, strong? It, I, in, lang in general, I would say that language has been separated from perception. I mean, there are exceptions within cognitive semantics and, and, and so on. But um, my focus is, is on, on the, the, the meanings. And then uh, the second question is, how, how can we express these meanings? So taking the, the cognitive line, I mean, follow Langer, 1987, in placing the notion of, of cognitive domain at the heart of your program, but you discuss these in a slightly different way to how he puts them. Uh, what, are, what are domains in your theory? I, mean, I, I, I borrowed the notion of a domain from, from Lanacker, that's true, although he doesn't give it a very formal treatment. I mean, he introduces that as a kind of primitive uh, phenomenon. For me, they are really the central building blocks. I mean, for me, domains are bundles of dimensions. And to give my favorite example, you take the color domain. I mean, we know that our perception of, of colors come in three dimensions, and these three dimensions have a certain structure. Uh, so for me, the color domain is one, one domain. And then we can talk about size, we can talk about shape, we can talk about temperature, and we can also talk about more abstract domains like kinship or money or, or, and so on. So my basic assumption is that 
meaning can be divided into a set of, of domains. It's an open set, open-ended set of domains since we learn more and more as we grow up, as we learn more and about, more and more about uh, our, our, our world around us and, and so on. But still, meanings are structured in terms of uh, these domains. Do you take a view on what constitutes a mental representation of the of these domains, or maybe in the neural representation of those domains? Well, now we are entering very difficult philosophical ground here, and uh, I mean, of course, I think that there is some kind of mental representation. What I propose is more or less a model of how our thinking about meanings are, can be represented. Then the question of how this is realized in our brains and, and how it's grounded in different other substructures, I leave that more or less open. So this is, this is a semi-mathematical model, model that I use to, to represent meanings. And to what extent they really correspond to our, our mental structures, I, I leave partly open. Sure, yeah. Um... A big sort of recurring feature of, of the linguistic treatment of your book is that uh, it's the idea that you emphasize the single domain thesis. Yes. Uh, you ultimately state a general version of this, which is that words in all content word classes except for nouns refer to a single domain. Um, what, what's the status of that claim for you? Well, in, in a sense, I think that's the main uh, novelty in my book that I, I think I've discovered that most words have meanings in, in one domain only. And then there are, of course, metaphorical extensions uh, in all directions. But uh, And the status of this um, claim is, well, in, in a mild form, I, I would say it's a rule of thumb, something that constrains um, meanings of words and that children can uh, piggyback on when they when they learn a language, I mean, they, if they hear a new word, if they can identify it as an adjective or as a verb, then they can use that uh, when, when learning what is the meaning of, of, um, of the word. So, for instance, if they have learned uh, one ad- adjective like cold, and then uh, they, know, they learn to know something about the domain of temperature, and very soon they can learn, then they, they can then learn the meaning of warm. I mean, we, I've noticed that the opposites, uh, the antonyms in, in language, are learned at about the same time when, when, when children pick up new words. And that's some kind of support that we learn, we don't learn single words, we learn words in, in different domains. But uh, the rule of thumb assumption is, is, is a weak one. A stronger claim would be to say that all words, uh, except for nouns, really ha- have a foundational meaning in one domain only. Uh, I'm not sure to what extent I could uh, support that hypothesis. I mean, in the book I did discuss a number of potential counterexamples to the, to the thesis, but, um, but I still hope that this, this thesis will be a kind of provocation for for uh, linguists uh, so that they can uh, go on and test uh, the validity of this idea. Indeed, yes. I mean, one uh, issue about the testability might be that uh, if anything can in principle be a domain, uh, we could always posit a new domain and save, so to speak, the single domain thesis. But presumably uh, that wouldn't be desirable. You'd want to 
impose some kind of a priori limitation on what can constitute a domain? That's a very good question. I mean, and, and that's really a problem I have in the book. I mean, I introduced this notion of a domain and I give examples, mainly examples from, from the perceptual domains and, uh, and embodied uh, structures and so on. But of course, you need a fairly precise uh, definition of what constitutes a domain in order to make the thesis really testable. And um, when it comes to some of the perceptual domains, I, I think I'm on pretty f- uh, firm ground. For, for instance, the color domain and, and, and some other domains like that. But when it comes to the more abstract domains, I mean, I don't know really how to uh, how to delimit the boundaries between the domain and how to identify them. So at the moment, you, I must see the thesis, the single domain thesis as a kind of research program. I mean, I can show that it's valid for, for some of the domains, and I hope that we can work out a theory of more abstract domain so that the theory can be tested in, in, in other aspects. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, presumably there's also a distinction between those domains, some of which, as you say, are very uh, primitive and founded in uh, perceptual experience, and in that sense, uh, we could be considered to have innate knowledge of them, which constrains our hypotheses about the meanings of words. But then other domains are going to be much more uh, complex and built based on experience and constitute in some way uh, a means of organizing that experience. Would that be a fair assessment? That would be a very fair assessment, except that I wouldn't claim that very many domains are innate. I mean, we learn them when, as we develop our perception of, of the world. I mean, we learn to distinguish different kinds of shapes. We learn to uh, experience temperature and weight and, and, and uh, all these uh, basic um, uh, perceptual domains. But, of course, they, they come very naturally if you're, if you're uh, a human with a fairly normal uh, uh, upbringing. Um, and so they form a, a kind of foundation where where language meanings can 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 get their their uh, f- foothold, so to speak. Um, uh, then, of course, when we come to cultural dimensions, I mean, kinship relation is is one example. Uh, of course, there are basic biological uh, structures in in kinship, but there are also all kinds of social structures on top of that. And there are other cultural uh, domains where I mean, like how we organize our our societies and, and uh, cultural phenomena that um, I don't know how to analyze. I don't know exactly if I can put these domains into some kind of geometrical structure. But that's a hope, and that's for me and for other people to work further on. Yes, I mean, as you mentioned, the uh, if you like, the, the mathematical conception of the, of the model is uh, is rooted on this um, assumption that we would be able to discern, in principle, the, the geometric structure for domains. But as you note, except in those for which we have uh, psychophysical evidence, those rather low-level domains that are based largely on perceptual experience, uh, it seems to be quite difficult to, to put that together. Could you sketch out how we might come to an understanding of the, if you like, the geometry of, of a complex domain like kinship? Yeah, there are, I, I, I can think of two basic methods. One is, of course, to work like the psychophysicists do. That is, to start with a, a, a number of similarity judgments. I mean, you, you, you find that orange is more similar to red than orange is to blue, so uh, orange is closer in, 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 in color space to red. Uh, so we, we, on the basis of such similarity judgments, 
there are methods for, for generating the geometrical structures, the domains that I'm, I'm working with. But of course, psychophysics doesn't work for, for all types of domains. Um, uh, so another method would actually be to look at the metaphors we use, because the metaphors reveal where the, the structure of the, the uh, target domain, the domain we are talking about. And, and the source domain, then, if we know the structure of the source domain, we can uh, transfer that to the structure of the, of, of the target domain. And in that way, by looking at what metaphors we use, we can, we can see something about how we conceive of more abstract domains. Um, just to go back to those uh, sort of perceptual domains, the ones studied by psychophysics, I mean, is it your view that uh, there is a process of, of organizing this um, input, so to speak, into this, this sort of structured notion of domain, or is, or is that something that we if it will do automatically? For some of the basic domains, I think we do it automatically. But then uh, there are various layers we put on top of that. I mean, there are these phenomena of, that are called categorical perception. I mean, we learn, we learn uh, an alphabet, we learn a series of numbers, and when we see a pattern, we interpret it as a particular item of the alphabet because we have these categories uh, in, in our minds already, so to speak, and then we, we, we organize our perception according to them. So categorical Historical perception is, is one way to have a kind of top-down top influence from, from our mental representations to how, how we organize the world. I'd like to turn, if I may, to another theme that's, that runs through the book, which is the, the notion of meetings of minds, yes. which is so fundamental to your, your conception of, of semantics. Could you describe the implications of that? In traditional semantics, I mean, in, in analytic philosophy and in, in a lot of the early formal semantics in linguistics, uh, it was seen as a mapping between some kind of ling linguistic structure, uh, a formal language in, in the ideal case, and a, a world or several possible worlds in, in, in modal logic. So the, uh, language was some kind of a relation between words and the world. But then came cognitive linguistics and said that, no, 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 meanings are in the head of the individuals. We live with image schemas, and it's the image schema that determine the, um, the meaning of the words. However, a hidden assumption in cognitive uh, linguistics is that these image schemas are more or less identical or very similar between individu individuals. Uh, but um, we know that uh, there are lots of cases where people think of the meanings of words in different ways. So the question is, how can we be sure that we talk about the same thing? I mean, even if I have one picture of, of, a, of a word, like, say, the word insect in my mind, and you have another picture, I mean, you may think of spiders as being insects, while for me, spiders is a totally different category than insects. Then we, I'm not sure whether we talk about the same thing when we use the word insect. So... Um, I need a, a principled way of bringing in the interaction between language users. So meaning, uh, in, in my opinion, is generated by the communicative interactions between speakers. So this is why I talk about meetings of mind. Now the question is, of course, how can we model this kind of meeting of minds? And then I, together with my collaborator Massimo Vaglian in, in Venice, we have developed a model that is based on some kind of fixed-point theorem. This is like the, the language games that were studied by David Lewis and, and, and Bob Stolnacker, except that we add the geometrical structure to 
to these uh, language games. So we can really talk about equilibria or fixed points in communicative games. And we can talk about the geometrical structures of these fixed points. So we have some kind of mathematical model of how this meeting of mind can be established in a, in a communication game. Now, um, developing this theory into full-blown uh, semantic theory is, is a very big task. And I've only made the very first step, steps in, 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 in my book. But uh, I think I have outlined a possible solution to bringing in the social aspect of language in a more or less formal model of how uh, communication about meanings uh, would be possible. As to the formality of the model, um, as you, you mentioned, uh, this is uh, rooted in or inspired by um, mathematical fixed point theorem, to quote Burroughs theorem in the in the book. What I wasn't very really wasn't quite clear as to whether the um, whether the proposal, if you like, relied upon the, the mathematics of that or was, in some sense, relying on an approximation to the mathematics of that or was, was um, speaking in some sense slightly metaphorically about the, about the analogy. And the analogy is that this fixed point theorem is, is a kind of existence result. It shows that uh, under very broad circumstances, people who start with different ways of using words, if they want to be successful in communication, they have to adapt their meaning spaces. And uh, in the in ideal end, they will end up with a, a kind of fixed point of meaning. I mean, this is you can rephrase this uh, modeling in terms of game theory. We did it in terms of this kind of fixed point modeling, but the, the principle would be, would be the same, uh, except that we use the, the geometrical structures of meaning quite a lot in, in, in this result. I mean, the notion of convexity of meaning is very central for this uh, uh, fixed point result. Uh, so it's, a, it's, it's an idealization, but it shows that um, the, the point is that uh, under very general conditions, people can, uh, can adjust their meanings and agree on, on, on meanings via uh, iterated communication. Yeah, I mean, as you discuss, it is an idealization, but it's an idealization that you think is, uh, is somewhat reasonable, that the, uh, or at least by appeal to other results, we can assume that there's some approximation to this this idealization that's some, somewhat stable. Is that is that yeah? Right? Yeah, as I said, this result is an existence result. It doesn't say very much about the process of how we reach the fixed point, and that. It uh, requires a, a quite different study. I mean, I, I refer to some, some uh, game simulations where people have tried to show how these fixed points are, are, are established. And um, so we can, we can show that also in simulations we can reach these, these communicative uh, fixed points. Uh, but, I mean, to, to do an analysis of how it happens in, in an actual natural language would be very complicated. So you would um, approve of appealing to the, the kind of work that's been done on relatively small-scale or relatively constrained uh, communication games and so yes, on? Yes, I mean, there are experimental games, but they are, they are rather constrained in, in the number of expressions used and, and in uh, the, the possibility of changing the meanings. If this is a sensible question, I'm not sure it is, what is it that, what is it that drives us towards a fixed point? How is it that we arrive at an understanding we need to, need to adjust our categorization in order to communicate successfully. Well, I'm also interested in the evolution of language. And for me, a very strong driving force behind our use of symbolic system is that we have a stronger need to cooperate than other other animals have. Uh, so we need to cooperate about things that are not present. We need to cooperate about future goals and, 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 and things like that. And that means we need some kind of system that refers to, to entities that are not present. And a way 
are doing that. We can do it by gestures, we can do it by, by icons, but we've developed some kind of symbols, the, the words, to refer to things that are not present. But then, of course, we need some kind of matching. We need to coordinate our meanings so we can, we can be sure that we, we, we do the right actions when we want to cooperate tomorrow. I mean, we, we may make a plan now that may mean that you go one way and I go another way, and if we are not coordinated in where we meet or what we do, then our actions will fail. So ultimately, the coordination comes down to pragmatics, that is success of, of, of cooperation. So that's why we, we need to have a meaning system that is sufficiently, uh, or meaning systems that are sufficiently well adjusted to one another. Am I right in thinking that this relates to the coordination within an established domain? Yes, it does. I mean, we, we have word meanings and we, we talk about uh, colors or places or uh, shapes or, or, or whatnot. And, um, I mean, and that, that's one of my theses that the, the words come with the assumption that there is a particular domain we are talking about. And of course, we, that's the first problem to solve, that, to know that we talk about the same domain. But I don't think that's the, the, the normal problem. The normal problem is to, to uh, adjust within a domain. So we may have different meaning ways of categorizing colors, or shapes, or, or something like that. I mean, I mean, you may call something red, while I call it violet. And if we don't agree on on where is the border, I mean, where, where, how to how to choose between the different colors, um, we will we may end up in in uh, not finding the right coordination in our plans. So the the assumption would be that we have generally uh, coordination at the at the crude level of domains that we share those those domains because they're initially rooted in somewhat common perceptual experience. Yes. Is that right? And when we learn in a domain, we normally learn what is, learn what is called the, the, the basic uh, level of the domain, and the basic level of, of concepts. So we learn, we learn uh, animal names, and then we learn, learn subcategories. I mean, if we learn dog first, then we learn words like terrier and, and poodle and, and so on. Uh, so we may agree upon the basic uh, meaning, and we may agree upon what is a dog, but may, we may not be agree upon what is a terrier. I mean, you may be a specialist on dogs, and I may not be so knowledgeable. So we have to adjust our meanings of, of the more specialized words. And I think a lot of communication, a lot of coordination of words is about these kinds of problems. Um, turning to the second part of the book, you discuss the analysis of different parts of speech in terms of domains. Um, I mean, here fundamentally it becomes, uh, it becomes clear that you suspect the means by which we traditionally, within a linguistic um, framework, identify and define different parts of speech might be wrong. Is that so? Not directly wrong, but they, I mean, for, for nouns and adjectives, I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm in uh, agreement with most of linguistics. But if you look at work on the semantics of verbs, for instance, uh, people never really leave the linguistic level. I mean, there are analysis of the meaning of the verb break means to cause to become broken. And then they don't analyze what is meant by broken. I mean, you never leave the linguistic level. And I think one of the benefits of my book is that I have a theory of events and of actions. I mean, a cognitive theory of actions and events that underpin the meaning of, of verbs. So I can, I can somehow um, formulate the meaning of verbs in terms of vectors, force vectors and change vectors, and that help me in bringing, breaking this uh, circle and getting out of, of the linguistic descriptions. Are there categories for which the analysis you propose strikes you as, if you like, more 
immediately satisfactory than others. I mean, you dwell, for instance, on the case of, of adverbs, which might be problematic for various reasons. And adverbs is a very difficult word clause, and I'm not an expert in the area, so I avoided that in the book. But, uh, of course, adjectives uh, work very well with my analysis. I mean, the domains, in particular, when it comes to perceptual domains work very well for adjectives. And I also think that prepositions uh, can be very nicely described in terms of geometrical structures. Most of them, I mean, one point in the book is that some of some of the prepositions actually involve forces, but then I have a, a, a mathematical theory of, of the forces that allow me to analyze some prepositions like in and over in terms of force vectors rather than purely spatial uh, structures. So I would say adjectives and, and prepositions fit uh, very well with, with the theory. But then I'm, I'm also rather optimistic that the, the theory of verbs that I, I, I present in the books can be developed and more um, fleshed out into a, a richer theory of different kinds of verb meanings and so on. Uh, in the case of prepositions, you also have this interesting idea, which I don't think I'm, I've seen before, uh, that by switching to a polar coordinate system, we might get a better understanding of, of uh, how the use of a particular preposition is going to be determined. I wonder, could you say a little more about that? Yeah, I was surprised when I started looking at the meaning of prepositions that uh, nobody had really proposed the, the, the use of polar coordinates. Uh, the polar coordinates mean that you look at the distance between where you are and the point you're referring to and the angle to the to a landmark and, or, or something like that. So the, the, the polar coordinates are in terms of, of distance and, and angle rather than in, in width, breadth and height in, as an ordinary Euclidean uh, geometry. Uh, so I did this work together with Joost Schwarz, a Dutch linguist, and he had studied, um, studied prepositions along the same lines as I was interested in doing. And... Um, and he had never really expressed it in terms of polar coordinates. But once we did that, we, we, we found a very systematic analysis of a large class of, of uh, prepositions. I think it's a, it's a very interesting idea. I'm very curious to know how, how, um, how generalizable it is cross-linguistically, which is a point you make elsewhere as well, that, the, uh, that there's a the matter of testing these, uh, some of these ideas cross-linguistically. Um, What's the, what's the status of, of that work as far as you're aware? I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm not a linguist and I don't, I don't know. I can't compare very many languages. I've talked to a number of linguists and my hope is that this kind of analysis that I'm presenting in the book can be extended to other languages than, than English. So I, I think that the meaning structures that I'm presenting are really uh, universal. But then how different languages carve up in the different domains, uh, how you carve up color space, for instance, and how they represent the different meanings that can vary a lot between the between the uh, languages but I mean I think I've pointed out two general principles that is that concepts correspond to convex regions of, of a domain and most most words correspond to uh, 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 meanings in a single domain I mean I think these constraints should be found in, in most languages so this is a hope I have that that other uh, researchers other linguists We'll, we'll try my ideas on, on other languages as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, I should ask about the status of nouns in the uh, model, just because we haven't actually explicitly discussed those here. These are, these are a special case in some sense. Yeah, in the sense that nouns depend on several domains. When you talk about a color, it's one domain. But when you talk about a, a, a dog or a chair or an apple, it has several domains. I mean, a dog has a size, it has a shape, it has a color, it has a smell, it has a sound, it has a weight, it has a temperature. I mean, a, 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 a noun comes with lots of domains. And it also comes with 
comes with uh, correlations between the different aspects. I mean, if you if you have a um, a large dog, it will have a deeper voice and and so on. So a noun is a kind of correlation between different different properties. It's a bundle of, of properties. So in that sense, nouns are different from other word classes, since my thesis is that for the other word classes, there is a single domain that determines the meaning. Uh, in the case of some items, um, possibly even no domains. Yeah. Uh, how do you treat, uh, for example, quantifiers in the model? Quantifiers come out as a rather special category of words. I mean, they've been very popular among among formal uh, logicians and, and some some uh, linguists in the Montague uh, tradition because they've been analyzed in terms of possible worlds uh, and, and, uh, and things like that. I don't need, I don't uh, require anything like possible worlds for my analysis. But the quantifiers come out as, as some special cases uh, and they function um, some of them function syntactic, syntactically like nouns, and it turns out that they have properties, I mean meaning properties, that are like nouns. But on my analysis, quantifiers are classified in a different way than what is normally done within in logic. And I mean, this is a very complicated area, and it would uh, be difficult for me to get into details here. Oh, absolutely. Um what I'd like to ask now is really, um, having stated your your theory um, and, and developed it over the course of this book, what would you like to see being done about it? Well, personally, I want to continue on, on, on the events and the verbs. I mean, I, I think I've discovered something concerning meanings of verbs that is, is worth pursuing, and that depends on, on the model of events. And uh, the model of events that I've developed together with Massimo Vaglian can be extended to a general cognitive theory of events that can be applied to many other areas than just semantics. I mean, we are thinking of, of developing a theory of causation, and other piece, people are working on that as well, based on this kind of uh, model. So for me, events and verbs is, is what I I want to continue on. But as I said, I also hope that other linguists will take up these ideas and I mean test them into, to the extent they are directly testable and try them on different languages and, and, and see how, how far you can extend these ideas about words are having meanings in only one domain and words corresponding to regions in, in, in domains. And, uh, and I, I would really like to have these ideas tested. As you say, there's quite a strong sort of claim about the way in which which language is constituted. Um, but there's also a claim, if you like, outside of linguistics about the about the organisation of of the concept system. Um, I mean, is there work to be done also on the on the side of on the cognitive science side of the fence, uh, so to speak? Is there is there experimental work there that could help elucidate the the nature of these? Of, of course, uh, of course, domains? there are plenty of work in that area. I mean, one. Source of motivation for my work was this problem that uh, it's been stated that children cannot learn language because the, the, the data is too sparse. And uh, so Chomsky and others have claimed that there must be some kind of innate basis for, for language. I would like to show that given the constraints we, uh, given the structures we have on how we organize our, our perceptions and our memories and, and so on, uh, it's not at all impossible to learn language. I mean, you just have to learn what are the relevant domains. That's not a simple task in itself, but it's, it's doable. And then once you have the domains, you have to learn which words you can use to express structures in, in, in these domains. So I would like to see my theory, I mean, this uh, uh, conceptual spaces as a source of constraints 
constraints that our brains are using when we are learning language, and that these constraints uh, somehow help us in explaining how children can learn ling- language as quickly as they can. So there are lots of experiments you can do on, on how children pick up domains, how they learn uh, words in the domains, and so on. I'm, I'm currently involved in, at my university with some experiments on children learning additive antonym pairs and seeing the developmental structure of, of, of this learning. Yes, you mentioned in particular the, the uh, classic work showing that children have, as analyzed in terms of this model, um, confusion in separating domains at an early uh, developmental stage, don't they? Yeah. Uh, this is quite interesting because, uh, for instance, I mean, take Piaget's classical work on, on um, conservation. I mean, uh, small children cannot d- distinguish the height of a liquid in a glass from the volume of it. So they think the, the, the higher the, the, the lemonade is in the glass, the more there is. But then they learn that there is a correlation between if, if the, the glass is wide, then it contains more uh, lemonade. So um, they learn this principle of volume. They learn to distinguish the dimension of, of height from the dimension of, of volume. So that's a development in terms of domains. And I think we can see traces of this in language development. I mean, learning language is very much a question of learning to pre, uh, perceive and understand uh, new domains. So I think that child psychologists and, and, and linguists could shake hands in, in studying the, uh, the d- development of domains. And more broadly, presumably this idea has, has, um, has implications for the nature of what is uh, innate knowledge. Um, that is, you're taking a position that we don't need to posit rich innate knowledge that is language-specific, but perhaps we do have some kind of set of guiding principles as to how domains are constituted, what they can be, what, uh, how, we, how we posit new ones, and so on. Yeah, sure. I mean, we have more or less similar perceptual systems, and, and the, uh, I don't talk very much about brain structures, but I presume that our ways of handling the perceptual information we get are more or less similar in our brains. That means we have a lot of common cognitive structures that that the language learning that can then can depend on and build on. Uh, so, um, uh, we have these perceptual mechanisms as, as a grounding for some language. I mean, that's the, that's the um, bootstrap that we can use. And then on top of that, we learn to use different kinds of uh, abstract domains. In, in addition to Piaget's distinction between height and, and volume, you could add uh, Newton's distinction between weight and mass. I mean, normal, normally people don't make a distinction between ma- weight and mass because on, on normal conditions, I mean, we don't need that. But Newton's theory depended on, depended on, on that distinction. I mean, that's a, an, a, a scientific discovery that introduces a new domain or a new dimension, the mass dimension, that was uh, crucial for the development of, of Newton's theory. So we find that kind of development also in, in scientific theories. In the last section of your book, you discuss some of the implications of this uh, of this approach for computational systems of, of language. How helpful do you think this model could be in improving the, the performance of dialogue systems? Um, I hope it will be very helpful uh, in, in the long run. I mean, there is a large distance between the rather abstract models I present and, and real computer uh, applications. But still, this idea of organizing information in domains should be very helpful to a programmer who wants to run a, uh, or, or develop a question-answering system because you can organize all the questions, all the information along the domains, and then you can assign uh, areas of the domains as meanings of the words, 
and and hopefully that will help in in um, uh, have, developing a question answering system that comes closer to a natural dialogue than uh, the most systems that exist now. I, I know this is a long shot, but but still. I believe and I hope that the, the concept of spaces will be useful, will prove useful for, for uh, computer programmers and, and question and answering system and, and, and things like that. I mean, an artificial intelligence system. Then another application would be in robotics where uh, robots would have to communicate with humans and uh, they, they, they can then see, perceive the actions of the human and via my analysis of action they could perhaps understand a bit of, of what the human is doing and express itself about that and, and ask questions in relation to the actions. So um, again, uh, this is uh, still far away but Hopefully, the structures I presented can be used also in, uh, to develop new um, areas within human-robot uh, interaction. Yes, it's certainly my impression that, would be, uh, that it would be possible within that area to exploit some of these structures, some of these findings, without necessarily taking a position as to whether the, the whole was, uh, was going to be an optimal model of, of the whole human system, so to speak. I mean, is that, is that yeah. fair? Yeah, and I, I think it's fair to say that if you look at other semantic accounts, I mean, uh, within linguistics, they are not uh, very suitable for, for implementation. And I, I, I wouldn't say that my, my models go directly into implementation, but they're easier to handle for a programmer than most other linguistic theories are. Absolutely, yes. Um, I'd like to conclude by, by asking about your own personal research priorities. I mean, we've discussed over the last three quarters of an hour many of the, um, many of the possible ways in which, in which this theory could be uh, further tested, particularly experimentally. But I'm also conscious that, as I alluded to, uh, you have an enormous portfolio of, of work and research interests across an enormously wide, uh, wide set of areas. Is it uh, a priority for you to, to pursue this, or uh, do you have other things calling you away? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a person with many interests, so I I find it I shouldn't say difficult, but I mean I, I work in many areas at the same time. But anyway, I I I want to continue, as I said, on on the verb and event parts of it, but I also want to connect this closer to my earlier work on the evolution of language. Uh, I want to look at different forms of communication, those forms that are unique to humans. And by analyzing what kind of cognition you need and what kind of communication you need for that form of co cooperation, for instance, to plan for future goals uh, or to form a contract or, or, or whatever, then I hope to um, see what, what is required of language, what kind of linguistic structures are needed, what are the basic structures that we have to have in, in, in an early language. So I think that uh, by combining, combining an analysis of cooperation with my semantic theory, I might get some new ideas about uh, or formulate some new constraints on how uh, language evolved. That sounds like a very interesting outlook. Um, how does this interface with other work you allude to at various points in the book on, on language evolution? Well... I, I, I also think that in language evolution, we could have a look at what domains do you need to talk about. I mean, in the early days, there weren't, we couldn't talk about money, we couldn't talk about governments, we couldn't talk about art, we couldn't talk about music. There were lots of domains that were simply not available. But there were, of course, perceptual domains, there were the animals, there were uh, lo lots of things in the world. So... Uh, 
in that sense, early language was constrained to the domains that people had thought about. And by looking at what domains are required for different forms of, of work, for different forms of cooperation, for different forms of communication, I, I, I think we can formulate a, a new set of constraints on, on the evolution of language that hasn't been uh, discussed before. Does the evolution consist just in the emergence or unfolding of new domains or in the changing or repositioning of existing ones? Uh, I, I guess there, there are, there's always been metaphor. I mean, my, my position is that meanings existed way before there was a language. I mean, we had some form of concepts and some form of maybe communication about concepts in terms of gestures or actions and uh, coordinations of actions. So we had to somehow coordinate our concepts even be before we can communicate in, in words uh, about them. In that sense, I think that semantics is prior, comes prior to, um, to syntax. But of course, we, as soon as we had meanings, we, we could talk about, we had metaphorical mapping. So I also think that by looking at basic metaphorical structures, we learn a bit about uh, the evolution of language. Well, I think it's a, it's a fascinating program, and I uh, look forward to hearing more about the results in due course. I'm afraid you will have no. to wait a couple of years, but anyway, and that's what I'm working on at the moment. moment. That's okay. Everything worth, uh, everything worth uh, reading takes a long time. Okay. Thank you. The, for the meantime, let me say, uh, Peter Jernfors, thank you very much for your time. Okay. Thank you very much. I've been talking to Peter Jernfors about the geometry of meaning. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.